Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. One of the bright spots for Democrats on election night came out of California. Kamala Harris, then the Attorney General of the Golden State, won her race for the U.S. Senate. And since coming to the Capitol, Harris has pursued legislative priorities such as criminal justice reform. But her seat on the Intelligence Committee and how she's been treated during televised hearings have added to her popular appeal. Harris talks about why she visited a women's prison, her disdain for the attorney general, and her love for a man she met on a blind date. Douglas, my Dougie, (laughs) my husband. Right now. Senator Kamala Harris. It's so fun to be able to say that. Senator (laughs) Kamala Harris, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm so happy to be with you, Mr. (laughs) Capehart. Mr. Capehart. We've known each other for a while. I think we met when you were, were you the San Francisco district District attorney? attorney. Yes, that is when we first met. Right. Um, And then you went on to be the attorney general for the great state of California. California. And now you are the junior senator from California. Correct. Is this what you thought it would be? Uh, No, and it is never boring. Each day presents itself and and kind of unfolds with all this magnificent, unpredictable stuff. (laughs) I think you're being being a little too kind. This is a podcast, so let her rip. I know, I know. It is, um, it's just, it's an environment. You know, here, first of all, here's the point I want to make. I came here. And I, didn't, I don't know any other experience in the, in the United States Senate, so I have nothing to compare it to. So for me, it is all very normal. But my colleagues who have been here for at least a term, if not many, many years, um, are often in a state of dismay of how different it is now compared to what it would normally be um, in terms of the experience. Mm-hmm. And so what's the craziest thing that's happened that you didn't expect to happen in the august body that is the United States Senate. Well, again, I didn't. I didn't have any expectations. I, so there's nothing that I can compare it to. But based on uh, what I know normally happens, there have been a lot of things that are unusual. Uh, you know, including you know having the vice president come and, and break ties and with the frequency with which that has happened. Certainly, there are lots of conversations taking place even right now about when one party is the majority in both houses and the White House, that usually things happen a lot smoother than they've been. <laughs> I, too bad this is a podcast. Because the face you just made is just perfect because you know things just aren't working um, the way they used to. And by used to, that's like a a Senate term ago. But one of the things that was being talked about before the end of President Obama's uh, term was criminal justice reform. There was great hope that, oh my God, this is an issue that has bipartisan support and something could actually happen. And yet here we are, I don't hear anything being talked about in terms of criminal justice reform, but this is something that you care about. I care deeply about it. I mean, my career as a prosecutor and um, I 
during my term of being district attorney of San Francisco and attorney general of California, it's been, frankly, my life's work is to focus on this. Uh, you know, my, my perspective is on criminal justice policy. We've been offered a false choice, which suggests you're either soft on crime or tough on crime instead of asking, are we smart on crime? And um, right now we could be a lot smarter as a country in how we're dealing with policy around keeping communities safe. And we need to do a better job, frankly. This morning, as a matter of fact, I was speaking to a whole group around incarcerated women. Uh, there is so much work that we can do to be smarter as it relates to that population, both around prevention and addressing their needs before the predictable happens, which is that they end up in the criminal justice system as a, a perpetrator. There's a lot more work we could do to be smarter around what we do with women when they are incarcerated in terms of getting them the counseling and the support that they want and need, and then what we do to help them reenter their community so that they don't reoffend and so that they're able to fulfill their natural desire, which is to parent their children and, and to be productive. You know, so you, you talk about these issues mm-hmm. and you talk about these issues um, the way any caring politician talks about them, but mm-hmm. you're not just talking. You went to, um, what was it, the, the Cal- Central California Women's Chowchilla, Facility. which is Chow- the largest women's prison in the world, I'm told. 3,000? Three, 3, oh, yeah. 3,000 yeah. inmates. And you went there um, just just recently, yeah. not, too, not too long ago. A couple ago. weeks ago. What did they tell you? What did you hear from, from the women incarcerated there? Well, first of all, I went there because I think that too often uh, we don't go and see things as they're actually playing out on the ground. And for me, it is important to, to go and and. and see people and speak with them and get a sense of, of how they are experiencing um, life so that I can be more relevant. I think that, that you know, the, the, the job has to be about being relevant and the best way to be relevant when we're in these positions as policymakers is to actually understand mm-hmm. at a very intimate and acute level what's going on on the ground. So I went out to go visit with the folks at Chowchilla and it was a lot of conversations with women who some started out in the juvenile justice system. Many described having been the victims of, of assault before, during childhood and later, um, but before they actually got into the system as a perpetrator. Many talked about the benefit that mental health treatment was giving them in terms of being able to deal with longstanding and untreated trauma and undiagnosed trauma. Many talked about the fact that they were uh, under the, you know, they had substance abuse issues, in particular addiction to drug and, drugs and alcohol, which caused them to do certain things. But again, that, that their addiction was a result of them self-medicating because of, again, mm-hmm. undiagnosed and untreated trauma. Talked with many of them about the fact that they had not received any meaningful training around skills for employment, for jobs, and there were apprenticeship programs that, that the prison is running to help them you know, figure out how to, to be an electrician or how to work on manufacturing in different types of ways, construction. And, um, and it's really important that when we talk about all populations, but that one is an example, that we understand that they're not knocking on our door, they don't vote, they don't write checks, but it's a large population of people, hundreds of thousands of women, who need to be seen and heard, and we can be smarter with public policy in a way that can help them and also help us. 
you mean you just said you know they're not seen they're not heard they don't write checks they don't write letters and so that made me wonder all of these things that you just talked about from training to um, substance abuse and counseling if they bring those concerns and those issues up are they even taken seriously given how little power or influence they have in our political system or even in our society so I think, Jonathan, one of the issues for, uh, that we have as policymakers and those of us who care about criminal justice reform, one of the challenges that we face is that we are almost always talking about people who have committed a crime. So this tends to be a population then of folks that a lot of other people have no sympathy for. Mm-hmm. And really, as long as we have done what they think should have to happen, which is that they are, you know, we've dealt with their crime. That's the beginning and end of the, of the curiosity, much less the conversation about that population. But as a prosecutor, I can tell you, we have to pay attention to what's going on with that population beyond their incarceration, because most of them are going to come out. And if we're not smarter with public policy, they're going to reoffend. That means crimes against us in our communities. There is also the fiscal costs it costs about $80 billion a year for us to house people in, in jails and prisons. $80 billion with mm. a B. Um, it is very expensive. And so there is another reason, which is not only the human cost, but the fiscal cost to us of not paying attention to these populations and being smarter with policy. Um, you just mentioned as a, as a prosecutor, you were district attorney there in San Francisco. You were the California attorney general. Now you are here in in Washington. You sit on the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is undergoing various hearings for a little situation involving the last election and the Russian interfering in our election. <laughs> and one of the things that's made you become not a lightning rod, but a focal point. Because when it's your turn to ask questions, everybody tunes in. Because you're a former prosecutor and they want to hear how you are going to ask the various questions. Do you think sitting in that role, you're a freshman senator, but do you feel that you have, because you're a prosecutor, an outsized influence with your your fellow Democrats on the panel to say, look, here are the questions that we need to we need to ask if we're going to get real answers and not filibusters. I think most of my colleagues are asking smart questions with that are probative of the truth. Um, certainly, my experience, having been in many courtrooms and conducting many investigations, influences my perspective in the way that I ask my questions and. Ultimately, I just want to get to the truth of what happened. And for me, asking those questions is about getting the answers and whatever is necessary to get the answers. Have you gotten the answers to the questions that you've asked already? Uh, uh, different levels of success based on, <laughs> based on the, um, the desire or lack thereof of the witness to produce those answers. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then on a, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being we, we are at the truth, where, where are we? on that scale in terms of knowing the truth about what happened? Mm, That's a good question. Uh, It's hard to gauge where we are as it relates to where we'll end up because, you know, each day presents 
new information. You know, investigations are interesting. I I think of it as being like almost like a a tree, and the tree then literally veers off into different branches, and those branches can then veer into other branches. And when you start going down one branch, you don't necessarily see that it's going to fork off in, in various different directions. But that's often the way that investigations grow and mm-hmm. develop and progress. And, um, and the important thing is to pursue the facts where they lead you. And sometimes it's in very unforeseeable and, and, and even unintended directions. And so we'll see where this, where this ends up. So I can't at this moment say that we are within some percentage of where we'll end up because I think we all should keep an open mind about receiving all and any facts that might be relevant mm-hmm. um, to more than anything else the the American public around answering the question what happened as it relates to the election in 2016 what is the relationship between any campaign and what happened what is the relationship between the Russian government and what happened and the way that I think about the investigation is not only a, a, a process of discovering the truth and bringing transparency to the American public around what happened, but also doing that because, one, we should know what happened and there should be the appropriate consequence and accountability for what happened in the past. And we need to know more about what happened so we can avoid it happening in the future. And that is about giving the American public through a free and independent press and all other appropriate mechanisms, as much information as possible so that, you know, when we're looking at 2018, which is practically around the, the corner, we make sure that we are not manipulated the way we were in 2016. You know, I like your tree analogy because trees grow. They keep growing. And so if you are an investigator, you're a prosecutor, and you're following the facts where they lead you and they can bend and wind and go all over the place, at what point do you stop and say, like, this is as far as we have to end the investigation because we could be at this for 15, 20 years? Is there a, nat- is there a natural end to, a pro- to an investigation when maybe... All of, all of the facts aren't known. They're not attainable. Yes. Witnesses aren't cooperative. Yeah, I mean, at some point, it becomes apparent that you have determined and have some sense of what evidence exists and whether you have pursued it all. And then you, you, you start to get to the point of being able to reach a conclusion. But that means if you think of it as, you know, rocks that you, that, you know, you know there are these rocks out there and you've not yet overturned each one. So you need to overturn as many as possible to see what's under there. Mm-hmm. And at some point you have a sense of, okay, there are no more rocks out there to so overturn. So it sounds like prosecutor, for a prosecutor, there's no such thing as a timetable. You're under no, sort of technically speaking, under any kind of, deadline pressure that is true because that could get po- that, that, that could get political true. i mean that's true as a as a theoretical point right. but the the bottom line is that it's, as far as i'm concerned we need to do this as swiftly as possible and we need to be precise we need to be careful but we need to get this done the american people have a right to know and frankly i'm i've grown a bit impatient with the pace so what should the community be doing that it's not doing 
I mean, if you're uh, impatient with the pace. We have to keep our foot on the gas and move forward and do it and be allowed and, and able to do it in a way that is without obstruction and um, and get to the heart of what happened. Um, obstruction on on whose part? The administration anyone, or on anyone or anything? The majority party anyone in the committee? Anyone or anything. And, um, one of the things that's made you, the other thing that's made you famous in these committee hearings is not just the questions that you ask, but what happens when you're asking the questions. And it seems as though everybody else on the panel can ask their probing, hard-hitting, or in a lot of cases, meandering questions, but yours are very clear, very focused, and yet every time you get interrupted and get lectured. Uh, how do you deal with the mansplaining that happens <laughs> to you uh, in those committees? Listen, I mean, I'm just so focused on the need to have the questions answered and that's my focus and I'm not going to stop asking the questions but I mean you know there's there's even a, a gif now which I've used full disclosure I've used the gif the the famous Kamala hair flip gif <laughs> of you know in the middle of talking and here comes this man <laughs> interrupting you and you flip the hair and you give that you give that look of Sister girl, look. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I don't believe this right now. Do you not hear me speaking? Expletive. <laughs> that's my that's my addition. Got not it. that not that you would do that. But how do how do you deal with that? Just per, just personally. At that moment in time, I'm truly focused on. I got to get the answer to this question. We need to know the answer to this question. You know, and so it's a, it's a number of things. If it were the the question, part of what happened was it was about saying, "Will you make a commitment to give Mueller, Bob Mueller, full independence in an investigation?" What you know, the questions are about evidence. What happened with the evidence in preparation? You know, where is the Depar the U.S. Department of Justice's policy? What does it say? Have you seen it? It's about asking questions that are about focused on getting the answers because the American public has a right to know. Is it galling? Because those are the questions you were asking current Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who is also a fellow former prosecutor. Is it galling to you as a, as a fellow prosecutor that you had to ask that question over in various ways over and over and over again to simply get a simple answer from him? I think that there is no question that um that that there was not a a desire to to be forthcoming and um you know we'll see where we end up well that's pro that's problematic if the attorney general of the united states has a problem being forthcoming before the senate and also since you know he's the chief law enforcement officer of the country he's a former prosecutor i mean should he even be in that in that job well, I've called. I've called on him to resign. So let's be clear about that. I, you know, I think that it's very clear that he has not been honest when he has testified for Congress, and not been forthcoming for sure. Especially in that la that last go around, when you're trying to get him to say, well, even about whether he met with Russians. Is it? I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, are you surprised that maybe not so much this administration, but that. Republicans in general just don't seem to be as phased by the Russian interference in our election 
as you would expect them to be. I mean, I grew up in the 80s under President Reagan where Russia was an ex- existential threat. And we had to take them seriously. And you, 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 you know, heaven help you if you said anything remotely complimentary of a Russian regime. You were suddenly, if you were a Democrat, a pinko commie. And now the Russian president is our best friend and, you know, we shouldn't take their incursion seriously. Listen, we have to be very clear thinking about what happened the intelligence community is pretty much uh, unanimous on this point. The Russian government, a foreign government that is also an adversary, interfered with the election of the president of the United States. It doesn't get much more serious than that as it relates to something that should deeply concern all of us. So on election night in November, sort of a a bittersweet night. Yeah. Hillary Clinton lost, but you won. Um, And actually, one of the bright spots of that evening was that there were Democrats who won, a lot of them women, a lot of them women, women of color. And so I'm just wondering, given where the party is right now, what do you think the party needs to do to learn the lessons from the last election? Well, I think partly the, the issue is that uh, there's a discussion which is assuming that we are divided as a country. And I disagree with that. Hmm. I disagree with that strongly. I, I don't think we are a divided America. I think the vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. You know, the way I think about it is three o'clock in the morning when people wake up in a cold sweat with that thing that's weighing on them, that's troubling them, they are never thinking about that thing through the lens of am I a Democrat or a Republican. That thing that wakes them up at three o'clock in the morning, they are never thinking about it through the lens of whatever demographic some pollster has put them in. And the, for the vast majority of us, when we wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning with that thought, it has to do with one of just a very few things. Our personal health, the health of our children, the health of our parents. Can I get a job? Can I keep a job? Can I pay the bills by the end of the month? Can I retire with dignity? We have so much more in common than what separates us. And so I think going forward, we all have to reclaim that fact and operate with that as our premise and reject this finger pointing us versus them. I think it is, it will prove to be to our demise as a country for leaders to divide us as Americans. Has the Democratic Party um, lost touch with the country? Because that's one of the things that, you know, was being said, that the Democratic Party has lost its way, that if only they had gone for white working class voters, everything would be all right. And to my mind, Democratic Party hasn't lost its way. Hillary Clinton got three million more popular votes than Donald Trump did. The country, when you look at the polls, is in line with all the things that Democrats want to do. So then if that's the case, why do you think that the party 
continues to do what it does best, and that is navel gaze, second guess, circle the wagons, and shoot each other. I think that you are absolutely correct that Democrats have always stood for working people, have always stood for the notion that access to, to health care should be a right and not a privilege, have always stood for the idea that we need to have safe communities and that everyone should have access to that economic ladder. And so I agree with you. We, I think, have nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to run from in terms of who Democrats have always stood for and, and why we have um, as a party. And again, and we're also, and certainly I can speak for myself, we also are a party that understands that the vast majority of people have more in common than what separates us. We are not a party that stands for one demographic over another. In fact, that I think is part of the hallmark of who Democrats are. We stand for everybody. So I can't let you go without, without talking about someone very important to oh, you. good. Douglas. Douglas, my Dougie, <laughs> my husband. And so, wait, I, this part, maybe I forgot, you met on a blind date? We did. Who had the nerve <laughs> to set <laughs> you up on a blind date? My best friend, who was like a sister to me. Truly, she is my second sister. I mean, you can name some names. And she, um, she, she met Doug and called me up and and I was in meetings and she texted me and she's like you have to call me back and I met this guy and you just you have to promise me just go out with him once and you know she's really bossy <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't the former first lady of the United States no and so okay. and I said so to nail this I down. said okay and um and we just hit it off immediately, and, and he just locked it down. <laughs> <laughs> what was it, so when you, when you saw him, what was the first thing that you thought? You know, he is one of the, he is, he's one of the most kind, good-natured, um, just good people. He has an incredible sense of humor, about himself and others, he is. Um, he, you know, he he's very basic. He cares deeply about family. Um, he cares about you know working hard. Um, he loves my cooking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that must mean. Actually, you're, I'm you're, a very good cook. Oh, you are a very I'm, good yeah, cook. Yeah, I actually am. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that it works like out a, really a, well. Oh, nice. Yes, yes. He has a healthy appetite. <laughs> nice. So you cook here. You cook in California. You yeah, cook whenever. And I he do. travels with you, meaning like when you're here, he's here. Well, when you're in California, he's in California. I wish that were always the case. But he, he definitely tries to come to D.C. and work in his D.C. office when I'm here. But it doesn't. It, that sadly, that's not always the case. But yeah, yeah, we like being together. No, and I, and I've seen that. And they, you, you know, you're you, newlywed. You, yeah. <laughs> no, this isn't about me, okay, Kamala. This is about this is this is about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, on that note, we're gonna have to leave it there, okay. Senator. 
Kamala Harris uh, of California. Thanks for being on the podcast. It's so great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hi, I'm Lillian Cunningham. Last year, I hosted The Washington Post podcast, Presidential, which explored the leadership and legacy of each of the American presidents. And this year, I have a new show for you, also about American history. It's called Constitutional, and it just launched. It's, of course, about the U.S. Constitution, but in particular, it's about the people who have framed and then reframed our American democracy over time. I hope you'll take a listen to our very first episode. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the Washington Post site at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional. The Washington 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 Post. Post.